Before we get started with our Sunday school, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for our health and strength and for the safety that you've given us to be able to be out in your house together this morning to study your word, to dig deep into the scripture, just to go beyond the surface black and white of the story, but delve into the the theology, the doctrine, the history, the culture, the language, so that we can get as much out of the story as possible, to be able to bridge those uh, gaps in our cultural understanding so that we can understand the scriptures better, because as we understand the Tanakh, the Torah, the Old Testament better, it it, uh, brings more and sheds more light and makes more sense out of the New Testament, the Renewed Covenant. So Father, as we go through Genesis 40, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just be our teacher and be our guide, open up our hearts and our minds to your word, to the reality and truth of it, that we can apply it to our lives. For we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 40, we're going to read the first four verses and kind of break them down. It says, After this, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, his cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. Uh, Okay, so supposedly these first four four verses happened during either one of two events. Uh, It was either the eight-day celebration of the birth of Pharaoh's son, uh, so that's what some scholars and some rabbis believe. Others believe it was actually Pharaoh's birthday himself. It was his birthday celebration. So a lot of times when we read the cupbearer and the baker, we just think of some sort of menial job or menial task. But these were actually very important jobs in the kingdom of Egypt. It was more than just somebody being a butler or somebody being a baker. They were actually... Um, the equivalent of a guard, uh, the equivalent of a bodyguard, so to speak. So basically, the cupbearer was the first line of defense of Pharaoh from getting poisoned. Because what a cupbearer's job was, was to taste the wine or the drink before he handed it to Pharaoh to make sure that it wasn't poisoned or there wasn't anything wrong with it. So it was uh, protecting Pharaoh from an assassination attempt. So the butler, the cupbearer, was more like a bodyguard in a sense. And he was actually kind of a contemporary, not a contemporary, but kind of um, a, a colleague on the same level as Potiphar, which was the captain of the guards. He was probably uh, under Potiphar in some way, shape, or form. And kind of the same with the baker. The baker was responsible for watching step by step every process of the making of Pharaoh's food to make sure that those that were uh, uh, mixing the ingredients and and baking and cooking, that they weren't doing anything subversive uh, because it would be easy to, uh, you know, poison a batch of dough or, or something of that nature. Now, so it says, after the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. See, these were just more than just servantary type positions. They were offices, the office of the cupbearer, the office of the baker. So they were official offices that just weren't uh, kind of a servant, uh, low menial, low class position. They were actually very uh, uh, prominent positions within the kingdom. Uh, 
the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. So, you know, you may ask, what did the cupbearer do? What did the baker do? Yeah. So we're going to answer that because there's a lot of extra biblical documents and rabbinic tradition that states that the cupbearer, that when the uh, cupbearer gave Pharaoh the cup of wine, there was a fly in it. And he was about to drink it, so he could have choked on the fly. The fly could have been carrying some pestilence or disease that would have made the Pharaoh sick. So that was the offense of the cupbearer, according to rabbinic tradition and extra-biblical documents. The baker, on the other hand, uh, failed to uh, catch a pebble in the dough. So back then, you know, it's not like you just go out to Walmart or Costco and get a big a bag of flour, you actually had to get the grain from the field, bring it into the mill, grind it, and everything. So in that grinding process, sometimes little stones or pebbles break off of the of the uh, um, of what you're using to grind the grain with. And so it's believed that there was a pebble that just kind of missed the attention of the baker, and it got into the bread. And when it was discovered, Pharaoh was offended because he could have choked on that. He could have uh, broken a tooth on that. And so because of these were both choking hazards and, uh, you know, could have caused, uh, 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 you know, poisoning or, or choking or something of that nature, he basically put them in prison. Now, we see that this was uh, verse 3. It says, he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guards. So we already know who the captain of the guard is. So in um, Genesis 39, it says, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt, an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards. So Potiphar was in charge of the prison. He was not only kind of like the, the, the head of the secret service of Pharaoh to protect Pharaoh's life. He was also in charge of the prison. So it says here in verse 3, And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards, in prison where Joseph was confined. So this, wasn't, this was more than just a dungeon. This was more than just a, a pit or a very dark, dank place, as we usually think of prisons, especially way back in the Bible days. This was more like the Apostle Paul under house arrest. It wasn't necessarily a really bad place to be, but at the same time, you had no freedom. You were confined. You were under house arrest. So this was this prison, this special prison, is, was sort of like um, a consulate or an embassy. So like if you're in a foreign country and you've kind of unwittingly broken the law and people are after you, if you run to you know, your embassy you know, the Canadian embassy or the American embassy, whatever nationality you are, that is, type, that is a type of sanctuary. And, you know, you're, you're basically under house arrest and you're being protected from those who want to kill you or prosecute you or what have you. In a way, this is what the, the, the prison house of the captain of the guards were. So likely this, this, this facility was on Potiphar's compound, on Potiphar's property. So this kind of also goes to show that Potiphar still loved Joseph, still believed in Joseph, but because he didn't want to lose face in public, he had to kind of defend his wife's honor, even though he probably knew she was lying. Um, he had him lashed, according to tradition. You don't find that in Scripture. And then he had him put in, 
in the prison on his compound so he could keep him close. Because perhaps he was afraid if he went to like the regular prison for regular slaves, uh, then he would be mistreated, abused, possibly injured or killed. Uh, and so we read the scriptures and it's, it was clear that Potiphar loved Joseph and thought a lot of Joseph, thought so much of him that he put his entire household under his care until he was falsely accused of rape. And so maybe he was also thinking, you know, if he can't serve by my side as my, you know, as my personal attendant, maybe he can, you know, serve in, in my prison because he did such a good job in my house. I know he's going to do a good job in my prison. So whoever was in charge of, of who was the prison warden, whoever Potiphar, the captain of the guard, put in charge of this prison house, um, gained the trust of Joseph and ended up putting Joseph in charge just as Potiphar put Joseph in charge at one point in time. Uh, let's see here. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Potiphar should have had Joseph killed, but he loved Joseph and doubted his wife and was obligated, uh, was obligated to incarcerate Joseph at the very least so as to save face for his wife and for his kids. So very briefly, I want to uh, turn to a passage in the New Testament in 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So here's Peter saying, you know, sometimes, yeah, you will be falsely accused. Sometimes unfair things will happen to you as a believer. You will be persecuted. But it's better to have a clean, clear conscience to be persecuted for something, uh, for being falsely accused than for, you know, being punished for something that you actually did that was evil. And so it goes on in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So if anybody was falsely accused, it was Jesus. And so we see that here again is another allusion to how Joseph is like a type of Christ. Because Joseph was falsely accused, and he was punished falsely, and endured suffering falsely. Uh, and, and we see Christ uh, did the same thing, but he did that for us. Uh, he took the blame and the punishment that we were supposed to get. So verse 19 says, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Uh, okay, so, um, all right. So the rabbis equate Potiphar with Potiphera. Um, and we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute because we find that um, uh, Potiphera is the priest of On. And so the rabbis think that Potiphera and Potiphar are the exact same person. So if you go to uh, chapter 41, verse 5, it says, uh, is that the one? Nope, wrong passage. Okay, I wrote down the wrong, the wrong passage here. But we see later on after uh, Joseph is taken out of prison that he marries Asenath, which is the daughter of the priest of On, Potiphera. So the rabbis believe that Potiphar and Potiphera are the exact same person. And you may wonder, well, why the difference of the name? Well, it wasn't unusual to have different names for different positions. 
It just depended on what hat you wore uh, is dependent on what you would be called. At home, I'm called father. Here, I'm called pastor. You know, uh, when I was a home health aide, I was referred to as, you know, a home health aide. I had different titles for different responsibilities that I had. So it wasn't uncommon or unusual you know, for something like uh, for the captain of the guard to also be a priest, because a lot of these gods, you know, some like, for instance, uh, Venus was the goddess of sex and war. Well, how odd, you know, it seems like two diametrically opposed things to be the goddess of, but she was the goddess of sex and the goddess of war. So this priest of own, maybe this god uh, somehow straddled, uh, you know, a, a war because he was the captain of the guards and, and, and he was also the god of something else. Uh, so like for another example, you have Moses's father-in-law that was called by three different names at least. So in Exodus chapter 32, <clears throat> uh, beginning with verse 25, it says, Moses saw that the people were out of control, saw that the people were out of control, making them a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side and go back and forth through the camp from, the entrance to the, from entrance to entrance. And each of you kill his brother and his friend and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell that day among the people. So what I wanted to bring out in this verse is that the Levites were the priests, but at the same time, the Levites were also the police force of Israel. So they were priests on the one hand, but they were also kind of like a, a personal army for Moses, uh, kind of like the police force of, of Israel, uh, uh, um, making sure that the laws are being followed. So here we have Potiphar and Potiphera, priest of On, that straddle both of those very same uh, things. Pot Potiphera was the priest of On, but Potiphar uh, was the captain of the guards. So we see just as the Levites were both guards and priests, Potiphar was both a guard and a priest as well. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, and most likely the rabbis are right. They've studied the scriptures longer than Christians have. And so, you know, they equate Potiphar with Potiphera. So just as Jethro, he's called the priest of Midian. He was Moses' father-in-law. He was also called Ruel. Uh, so he had several different names. So it wasn't uncommon for one person to be called by different names, depending on what hat they wore. And sometimes the names were actually titles. So my guess is that Jethro is a proper name as opposed to Ruel, which is a title. Because Ruel, you have the word L at the end of Ru. Ruel, L means God. So it's some sort of title, more so than a proper name. Uh, all right. Let's see. So in chapter 41, verse 45, it says, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphanath-Paneah and gave him his wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So here we see that, that, that Joseph marries Potiphera, or shall we say Potiphar's daughter. 
Now, I think this happened because Pharaoh wanted to make the message clear that this Joseph that I'm putting in charge, yes, he's a convict, yes, he was in prison, yes, he was accused of rape, but we as the government of Egypt and the authorities of Egypt believe he was falsely accused, and to prove this, we're going to give Joseph Potiphar's very own daughter. So it kind of showed that even Potiphar or Potiphera believed that Joseph was innocent. So it just kind of made Potiphar's wife look bad. So this was sort of a vindication for Joseph to let the people know that he truly was innocent. Now, there's an interesting legend regarding Asenath. Like I said, I don't know if this is true. This is not in the Bible, but this is in uh, rabbinic uh, literature and Jewish tradition. You remember Dinah, Jacob's daughter. Dinah was raped by Shechem, the prince, the prince of Shechem, in other words. And we know that uh, Simeon and Levi went in and rescued Dinah and slaughtered all the men of Shechem. And uh, so with this encounter of Dinah being raped, she did get pregnant according to tradition. But because it was a shameful pregnancy and because it was kind of a blight and a black mark, that when this child was born, uh, it, was, it was given away. So it's believed that, that she was given away to, uh, to be adopted in Egypt and that Potiphar and his wife adopted Asenath as their own daughter. That's tradition. Now, this may be just the, the, the Hebrews or Jewish ways to, to, to make Joseph's descendants, Ephraim and Manasseh, totally Semitic. But they would have been Semitic anyway, even if this wasn't truly Dinah's daughter. We can't know and we don't know for sure. And the reason I say that, that, that it was Semitic anyway is because by the time that Joseph got to Egypt, it wasn't the Canaanite Egyptians that were ruling. The Canaanites came from Ham. The Canaanites uh, were the ones who were cursed. They were the ones that were having intimate sexual relations with the fallen angels, creating the giants and the Nephilim. And so it was forbidden for uh, Hebrews to marry Canaanites. So if Asenath was truly a Canaanite, Joseph wouldn't have been permitted or allowed to marry her, and he would have refused. But we see by this time it was the Semitic Bedouins called the Hyksos that came in and took over Egypt. And so the Hyksos are Semites. They are of the same family as the Hebrews. They both come from Noah's son Shem. So whether Asenath was uh, a Hyksos, Hyksos means shepherd kings, or whether she was truly Dinah's daughter from the union with uh, Shechem, regardless, Joseph's children were going to be Semitic, regardless. So I just think that's just kind of an interesting uh, legend, and we'll get more into that as we go into chapter 41, probably next week. Uh, okay, so rabbinic midrash, an extra-biblical text, tells us Joseph's hardships didn't end in prison. But Potiphar's wife would visit often to taunt him and to tempt him. So we see that as Joseph was imprisoned, um, and it was on as we, as we uh, are led to believe because he was in the house of the captain of the guards, which meant that this house arrest prison compound was probably on Potiphar's property somewhere. He wanted to keep Joseph close. It wasn't, uh, it's not a far stretch to believe that Potiphar's wife would go to that prison to visit him often, especially when her husband was away, and to taunt him and to torment him, to say, you, you, don't, you don't have to be here. You could have avoided this if you would have just slept with me. You know, maybe, you know, if you do me this favor, I'll be able to put in a good word for you, and I'll be able to get you out. So he was continually tormented in prison, according to rabbinic tradition and extra-biblical texts. 
by Potiphar's wife. Uh, so even though he was maybe in a better place than a dungeon, he mentally he was tormented, spiritually he was tormented by Potiphar's wife. So the imprisonment of the cupbearer and baker was, uh, was a year according to the rabbis, so that they were imprisoned for an entire year because it happened on a, a festive occasion, whether it was the birth of Pharaoh's son or whether it was Pharaoh's birthday himself, they were in, in prison for a, a total time of a year according to uh, the rabbis. And they were released a year later on Pharaoh's birthday. All right, so verse 4, it says, The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time, and as we believe, probably a year. Yeah, a season, yeah, a season is kind of an undetermined amount of time, but if we're to depend on the extra-biblical text to kind of back up what the canonical text says, we probably believe it was a year. Uh, so a season, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, kind of up in the air. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Potiphar again showed his trust and favor to Joseph by assigning him to look after these high-profile prisoners. So it would be basically, you know, if, if, if I was in prison and i was attending you know like i was i was the assistant in the prison to maybe one of the senators of the united states or one of the you know uh, mlas or mps that for some reason went to prison that would kind of be the equivalent uh these were high profile prisoners and so potiphar potifera uh trusted joseph enough to assign him to be the the uh, personal attendant to these uh, officers of Pharaoh that, that were in prison. Uh, Potiphar knew that they'd get top-notch care and service and treatment because Joseph was, was an impeccable servant and he had a high moral character. Uh, now, the reason that the cupbearer and the baker were likely put under house arrest in the captain of the guard's compound was because these were high-profile officers within Pharaoh's court, and they didn't want to put them in the general population of a regular type of prison. And uh, so Potiphar was probably likely friends with the cupbearer and the baker because he was likely he knew them because uh, you know if Pharaoh was the captain of the guard, meaning that he was part of Pharaoh's the head of Pharaoh's secret service, the baker and the cupbearer, which were considered offices, uh, frontline defense of Pharaoh getting assassinated and poisoned, he would have probably known them personally and was probably personal friends of his. So it was kind of like a favor to them that they were in this posh type of prison. Okay, all right. Moving on to verse five, it says. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in prison, each had a dream. Now, dreams were considered very spiritual, very prophetic. You know, a lot of times today we live in such a, a supposed enlightened society, and we're all about philosophy and psychology, that dreams are symbolic, but they, they're really nothing. It's just our mind doing crazy things. Well, the ancients believed that dreams were prophetic. They believed that dreams were another reality. Just as we are standing here today and we are breathing air and we're living, that when you sleep, it's another. the dreamscape is another reality. It, 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 it really happens and it really exists. And I tend to believe this because in my dreams, I've been spiritually attacked by demons. 
If the dreamscape wasn't a real type of reality, how could demons affect my dreams? But I believe I've been attacked in my dreams by demons. Uh, and, and likewise, I believe that God has spoken to me in dreams. So I believe that dream, the dreamscape or, or, or dreaming is a, another dimension of reality, if you will. So the ancients believed this. So they believed that their dreams had meaning and that they were not only had meaning, they were prophetic of the future. And it was common for people to go and pay to have their dreams interpreted by professional spiritual spiritualists that, that had expertise in interpreting dreams. So it says that the kings, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. So for these two individuals to have a dream on the exact same night, that was not a coincidence. That was supernatural. You know, it's, it's likely one person to have a dream. How is it likely that two people have a dream on the very same night and then they discuss the dream with each other and realize that they're, they're pretty much the same, that there's a lot of things that are similar between the two dreams? That can't be coincidence. That obviously had to be supernatural. So verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, so he was probably giving them breakfast or, you know, dressing them or, you know, performing some sort of task or service. So when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. Now, there is a protocol with servant and uh, with slave and, and master or, you know, a, a servant and whoever they're serving. You, you stay professional. You don't get chummy. You don't get buddy-buddy. You don't talk about sports. You don't talk about personal, intimate things. Uh, in, in, I think it was uh, Ezra or Nehemiah, one of those books where, you know, uh, this, this Hebrew, this Jew, was, was servant to the king, and he looked sad in his presence, which was a death sentence. You didn't want to bring the king down. You didn't want to harsh on the king's mood. Even if you were brokenhearted inside, you put on a good face and you acted like everything was fine. But he said, well, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong with you? You look sad today. He says, like, how can I be happy when my city and its gates and its temple are in ruins? So he took a risk there. Now, Joseph took a risk here, too, by getting close and intimate and chummy with the cupbearer and the baker. His job was just to serve them. But he, he took a personal care and personal interest in the cupbearer and in, in the, the, uh, um, the baker, because perhaps he kind of saw himself in, in, in them in a little bit saying, you know what? Yeah, it, you know, it's a bad thing to have a fly in, in, in the cup of wine, and anybody could miss a little pebble in a batch of dough. You know, I think this was a pretty harsh, so I kind of sympathize or feel for them. So verse 7, he breaks this servant protocol, and so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, master's house. Again, that's kind of a hint that this was on Potiphar's compound. Why do you look so sad today? They could have said, look, who are you? You're just a servant. It's none of your business. And it wasn't none of Joseph's business. That wasn't his job. So he was probably taking a risk here to take personal interest in their mood. And he say, why do you look so sad today? Um, all right, verse 8. They respond, we had dreams, they said to him, but there is no one to interpret them. So breaking the slave-servant protocol, the cupbearer and baker were eager to allow Joseph to help him, to help them. Uh, they may have heard from uh, Potiphar how good of a guy Joseph was. 
because we know that the cupbearer and baker probably knew Potiphar personally, and if he knew, and if they knew that Potiphar put him, put Joseph personally in charge of them, that Joseph is, is somebody that could be trusted. So it was easy for them to break that protocol. But like I said, um, you know, uh, dream interpreters were a dime a dozen in Egypt, and it wasn't uncommon for people to go and to these dream interpreters if they had a dream. But because they were incarcerated, they didn't have access to any dream interpreter. So they were distraught. They're like, we have it. a dream, according to the rabbis, a dream un uninterpreted is like an unopened letter. A dream uninterpreted is like an unopened letter. You can have a letter and know who it's from. And if you don't open up the letter, you don't know what, who, what, what the person sent it, what they wanted or what they wanted to say or what it was about. So we believe that dreams come from God and to have a dream from God not interpreted is like having an unopened letter. Even the bad ones, they have meaning. Yeah. And, you know, that could be a spiritual attack because I've had demons impersonate my grandmother and grandfather, and they were acting out of character in the dream. But when I analyze their face and analyze their words, I'm like, this isn't my grandma and grandpa. This must be a spiritual attack. So, um, yeah. Uh, okay. So dreams and dream interpreters were in high demand, and it was a lucrative business in Egypt to interpret dreams. Back then, they were considered to be messages from the gods. And again, Joseph, he gives credit to his God. All right, so uh, the second part of verse 8 says, Then Joseph said to them, don't, interpre don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now, you know, Joseph, he had a couple of dreams, too. You know, and his dreams at that point were yet unfulfilled. But he knew a lot about dreams. Dreams were important to Joseph. So he said, you know what? Don't interpretations belong to God? I can't personally interpret your dream. But if God helps me, I'll be able to interpret it. So tell me your dream. All right, so verses 9 through 15 is uh, the dreams here. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and came out, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Now, Pharaoh's cup, just stop right here just for a second. It was more than just a cup. Because if you remember later on, Joseph's silver cup, he placed in Benjamin's sack. And when it was found, they had to go back to Joseph because they were under arrest. And he said, don't you know I use this cup for divination? So there was some kind of spiritual significance linked to the cup of Pharaoh. Not that Joseph really did do divination because that's witchcraft. He just said that to kind of keep up appearance because they thought he was an Egyptian ruler. So it says, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed them in Pharaoh's hand. And so Joseph says, this is the interpretation. Three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now, to lift up your head is a sign of favor. And we see this in the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord uh, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So, you know, when, when you are asked to look into the eyes of a king or a ruler, uh, that shows favor. So it says... Um, in just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, 
and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to uh, when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember who I, remember that I was with you. Please show your kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and uh, get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that should uh, be deserved to be put in this dungeon. So the dream was, was obvious. It was an obvious interpretation of the dream. Very simple dream. You know, he dreamt of three vines, uh, and, and those three vines or three branches represented three days. He had Pharaoh's special cup, his divination cup, his cup of rulership, the cup that symbolized everything that Pharaoh was, his authority, his power, his spirituality. And he personally squeezed, you know, uh, the, the grapes, uh, the full ripe grapes into Pharaoh's cup. Now, why did Pharaoh, we know that Pharaoh is going to forgive the cupbearer. Why did he forgive the cupbearer? Because it said that Pharaoh reasoned, well, it very well could be but at the time that, that the cupbearer had my cup, and from the time he had the cup and tasted it before me and then handed it to me, it's reasonable that a fly just out of random, out of nowhere, could have flown into it. You know, obviously, I think that he's, he's, he's such a good officer. If he would have seen the fly, he would have, he would have taken it out or he would have gotten a new cup of wine. He wouldn't have let that fly in there to do the backstroke in my, in my wine. So Pharaoh reasoned, well, I'm going to give the cupbearer the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it wasn't his fault. Maybe this was just fate. Maybe it was just by chance that this fly got in my cup before it actually came to me. So that's why it wasn't such a great offense, and that's why he let the cupbearer off the hook. Now, there is a legend that there's a second interpretation to the dream. Legends of the Bible gives a second interpretation. It said, quote, the chief butler was unaware that his dream contained a prophecy regarding the future of Israel. But Joseph discerned and recognized the meaning and interpreted the dream as thus. The three branches are the three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob whose descendants in Egypt will be redeemed by three leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The cup put in Pharaoh's hand uh, was that cup filled up with God's wrath. So that's very interesting. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It fits, but that's uh, 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 one of the legends of the Bible regarding a second interpretation to this dream. Now, verses 14 and 15. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you, Please show your kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and, have, and even here I have done nothing wrong that, that I should be put in this dungeon. So the rabbis say that because Joseph said, uh, said this, that he didn't trust God's power and providence, and as punishment, God allowed him to remain in prison two more years. Because he was depending on man rather than depending upon God. But, you know, I think it's natural for anybody to say if they had a chance to get a message outside of the prison, say, hey, put in a good word for me. I think that's natural for anybody to do. All right, so moving on to the baker's dream, the second dream. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, hey, this guy got a good interpretation. He'll probably give me a good interpretation. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods. Some translations say pastries, that they were sweet bread, delicacies, desserts. 
for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Now, an interesting thing. In Africa, you see these national geographics in Africa and in, in parts of the uh, Middle East. You'll see women carrying water pots or carrying baskets on their head. Well, it was the opposite in Egypt. If you look at Egypt uh, hieroglyphs and Egypt reliefs, you will see men carrying baskets on their head, and you will see women carrying things on their shoulder. So this is, this is kind of a, a, an indication that this Genesis account was authentically Egyptian, that we can believe the word of God because it understood the culture of the day. I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. So he was naturally carrying these baskets. In the top basket were all sorts of baked good for the Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is the interpretation, Joseph replied. Three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you and hang you on a tree. The birds will eat the flesh from your body. Now remember when Jesus said, take this bread, this is my body broken for you. So bread symbolizes body, symbolizes the body, even back then as it does in the New Testament. Uh, okay. So the baker was not hung by a noose or even crucified, these modes of execution were not common. He was beheaded and impaled. That's what this meaning, that's what the interpretation was. So he probably had his head cut off, put on a pike, and he probably had his uh, headless body put on a pike and impaled. And it was a warning not to offend the Pharaoh. If you offend the Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, Yeah, lifted up his head off. So he was beheaded, and you will be hung on a tree, in other words, like a wooden pike or a wooden stake. And the birds will eat the flesh from off your body. Uh, okay. All right, now, this is the alternate interpretation of the baker's dream, just as there was an alternate interpretation of the cupbearer's dream. So it says, uh, according to the uh, legends of the Bible, three baskets are three kingdoms which Israel will be subject to, Babylon, Media, and Greece. The uppermost basket indicates that the wicked rule of Rome, which will extend over all the nations of the world until the bird shall come, who is the Messiah, and annihilate Rome. So that's supposedly the alternate interpretation there of that. All right, so verse, verse uh, 20. On the third day which was Pharaoh's birthday. So that lines up with the dreams. Three vines or three branches are three days. Three baskets are three days. So on the third day, and it also reminds you of the New Testament, because in the New Testament, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was three days after his crucifixion that he came out of the, uh, came out of the prison, which we call the tomb. So he was in prison. He was incarcerated in that tomb. There was a stone that was there that just, you know, you would have to have a whole bunch of guys to roll it away. So they kind of, it also kind of reminds you of Yeshua in that way too. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. Now, birthdays today are different than birthdays back then. Birthdays today, we want people to come and bring us gifts. But back then... If somebody had a birthday, you threw a party and gave gifts to your subjects, to your friends, to your servants. So it's kind of, uh, we do it backwards today. 
says he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer because, again, you know, perhaps the fly came in there between him, you know, having the cup and bringing it to me. So I'm going to give this cupbearer the benefit of the doubt. He never done me wrong before. There's no reason why I shouldn't trust him. So I'm going to restore him to his position. And the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Boom, fulfillment of the dream. But Pharaoh hanged the chief cupbearer just as Joseph had explained it to, him, to them. Now, you know, who knows? Uh, it was a greater offense to have a stone in a piece of bread. Now, I, I can attest to this to a certain degree. In Nigeria, when I was there on a mission trip, there were vendors on the sides of the road. You just couldn't go into a convenience store and get a loaf of bread or whatever. So there were people that were selling goods on the side of the road. Well, my host was hungry, so he decided to get a loaf of bread. Now, when he got this loaf of bread, it was baked with sand in it. So when you bought, bit into the bread and tore the bread and started chewing it, you would be chewing these little grains of sand. It was uncomfortable. It's dangerous. You know, it could get stuck between your teeth. It could be a choking hazard. So I kind of understand that. But this was a pebble, likely a pebble from the grinding mill. Uh, and possibly the baker maybe have lapsed maybe in the past in his, in his duties and it was neglect in his responsibilities. And maybe this was the straw that broke the, the, the camel's back, so to speak. So he, the, the, the offense of the baker was greater. So he probably deserved death. And so that says that, but Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now, we always cry out to God when we're in trouble. But when things are going well, we don't cry out to God. When we say, God, help us out of the situation, and he helps us out of the situation, how many times do we thank God afterwards? We just think, oh, things are back to normal, and we forget about thanking God. Well, this is kind of like what happened with the cupbearer. You know, things were back to normal. He was so excited to be reinstated in his, his lofty position, and he totally forgot about who got him there. It was Joseph. But also, this was divinely uh, meant to be as well because... Again, rabbis say that Joseph had to spend two more years in prison because he depended upon man instead of God to get him out of the situation. And so God allowed the chief cupbearer to forget about Joseph until the time was right. If, if Joseph was let out of prison beforehand, if the cupbearer gave him a good word beforehand and he was let out then, then maybe Pharaoh would have never had those dreams and Joseph would have never been able to interpret those dreams. So even in our worst of circumstances, God has a reason for us being there. Not necessarily that we're being punished, maybe because we're being refined, because you know a refiner's fire is not comfortable, but God uses adversity to make us better, to make us stronger, to purge us of our flaws and our, and, and, and our inadequacies, and to make us stronger and better, just as a fire will make any kind of molten metal uh, more pure and more durable once it's forged. Uh, so this was a divine thing that, that the chief cupbearer forgot about Joseph. So um, because God was, was setting things up for uh, him to glorify himself through Joseph. And these are, uh, so next week we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41, which is going to be talking about Pharaoh's dreams and um, the interpretations of them. And I discovered some pretty interesting things about Pharaoh's dream that, Usually people don't touch on, so uh, I'm kind of excited to go over that. Yeah. 
All right, well, that's chapter 40, so we'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being able to get through another chapter this week in your word and all the wonderful and interesting things that have been brought out about this. And Lord, help us to remember it and help us and show us ways that we can apply these uh, simple historical accounts to our hearts and our lives and our minds. And maybe that there's a, a way or a situation that we can share our knowledge with uh, our lost family and friends, or maybe even with saved family and friends who are backslidden or maybe not involved in church anymore, that we might be able to bring people back for the honor and glory of your name. Lord, as we go into our uh, Sunday morning service, we ask your blessings upon it, that you would give me the words to say uh, that the people need to hear, and may your Holy Spirit prepare each and every heart and mind of every individual that's here, to, that's going to be here today, uh, and that your word will not return void as your scriptures promise. For we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.